0: So as you know, we find ourselves this morning in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11-12, through 12, and into a new turn in Peter's heart. Thus far, he has given us deep, sound, life-altering theology. He has proclaimed for us that for those who are chosen by the Father in eternity past, there will be a life devoted to holiness. That's kind of it in a nutshell. If God has placed his special love upon you, if he's called you unto himself, then you have a desire to honor him with your life. And so you long for the sinful roots of fleshliness to be rooted out, and you subject yourself to God and his church and your willingness to do that. In this text, he starts off with a word that he hasn't yet used. And it might surprise you, because certainly Peter's heart exhibits the content of this word all throughout. But it's this word. It's the word beloved. It comes from agape, and so it is a selfless love. It's not just a feeling. It's not just a brotherly love. It's the kind of love that shows one's greater interest in others than self. It is toy. It's translated rightly as beloved. Your translation might say friends or dear friends or something like that. And that's not inaccurate, but that's more of an effort to put it in modern terminology that really doesn't have the punch that the word beloved does. The scripture uses the word beloved many, many times. It's usually Paul. Uh, Peter really only uses this term eight times. He uses it twice in this letter. He uses it six times in his second letter. And two of those times are not addressed to the body. Once is a reference to Paul the Apostle, and another time is a reference to God himself, the Father's love for the Son. So Peter uses this term only six times in his two letters in reference to the body. And so he uses it very reservedly, very conservatively. And so it means something, it has great significance when he does use it. So he starts out here pointing back to God the Father, but also to the body of Christ in an effort to help the reader understand the motive behind what he's about to tell them. I don't have to ask you what motivates you. I'm pretty sure that in your heart, it's not an act of abuse that leads you to be motivated, right? It's not harshness that brings you in your heart to be motivated to honor the Lord. Sometimes you can be motivated by those external harshnesses that people bring to you or uh, wherever that might take place. But that doesn't really motivate you internally. What motivates you internally? It's when you know someone loves you. And so Peter here is appealing to the love of God, that the reader would respond rightly and that his conduct would prove that he has responded rightly and that he is in fact motivated by that love. In an effort to help you and myself better understand that we are to rest in God's love and destroy fleshly lusts so that the Lord will use our conduct to save the lost. Point number one. Point number one, remember God's love. Remember God's love. Our text reads this way, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. This term, beloved, means loved ones. It actually means very much loved, especially loved, very dear, or even only dear. In other words, it is a specific term for a specific people. When Peter uses this term, he's speaking to those who are loved especially. It's a term reserved for those upon whom God has placed his special love. You will not find this term applied to the unbeliever in the Word of God. You won't find it. In the New Testament, the term is only used of those who are converted to Jesus Christ. All that Peter has said up to this point is important and compelling for sure, but here he uses this term beloved that would draw their minds back to all that he has said up to this point about God's special love for them. This deliberate change in tone with the use of this term calls attention to the love that the readers have received from three different sources. They've received this love that leads Peter to use the term beloved from three different sources. One, Peter. Peter loves them. So as Peter says beloved, he certainly would be referring to his own love for them. A number of preachers throughout the years have regularly used this term. Some of my favorite preachers regularly use the term beloved in speaking to their congregations. Why? It's the right word. It's because they love their congregations. And so they use that term, beloved, to communicate to them. I mean, how much more loving would it be to say, now listen, people, (laughs) listen, church. You know, those aren't wrong things to say, but to say, beloved, hear me out. It means something, doesn't it? Peter here draws attention to his own special particular love for those to whom he writes. For the first of only two times in this letter, he uses this term of particular endearment. He appeals to the reader based on his certain and targeted love for them. Second, the body's love for them. Peter not only would be thinking of his own love for them, but the body's love for the body. Back in verse 22 of chapter 1, Peter says, "...since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren... Fervently love one another from the heart. You remember that text. Peter there uses those two different terms for love, not only agape, but also phileo. And so he points to the reality that the believer naturally loves with a phileo love. He naturally is instantly drawn to believers the moment God saves him and adopts him unto his family. He has a love for those who are his brothers and sisters in Christ. But there, Peter calls the reader to engage in, a, in an agape love, a willingness to die for his brothers and sisters in Christ, just as Jesus Christ died for them. So Peter here would be thinking of the body's love for the individual, for every person in the body to whom he writes. He would say, know that you are beloved by the body. And then third, of course, he would be thinking of, of God's love for them when he calls them beloved. It is a reminder of God's particular or special love for them as well. Back in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1, Peter says, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, "'who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again "'to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, "'to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled "'and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you.'" God's willingness to cause them to be born again despite their inability and unwillingness to want to be born again is an act of God's love. Back in verse 23 of chapter 1, For you have been born again not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. This is an act of God's love. It's an expression of God's love for His sheep for his children, I want to reference just two other verses outside of the book of First Peter to call our attention to the specialness of this love. In Romans one verse seven, Paul says to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul goes so far as to attach the word, the Greek term theos, the the term God, to this word agape toy, so that the people understand specifically that he is speaking about God's special love for them. And then you know this in 1 John 4 verse 19, we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. We didn't love him and so he chose to love us in turn. We didn't choose him and therefore he said, okay, you choose me, I guess I'll love you. No, we love him because he first loved us. For the reader to understand that other believers love them and to see that embodied in the term beloved would be the result of the fact that God first loved them. If you love anyone, it's because God first loved you. So, Number 1 again in an effort to rest in God's love and to destroy fleshly thinking so that your conduct would be used of God that the lost would be saved. Point number 1 as you know is remember God's love. Point number 2 Point number 2 destroy ungodly soul-destroying thinking. Destroy ungodly soul-destroying thinking. Peter goes on here and he appeals to the readers regarding the fact that they are aliens and strangers. The term aliens here could be translated as foreigner or sojourners. It denotes one who is living in a foreign country without the rights that citizens have. They are settled in a district only temporarily. You go back to chapter 1, verse 1, you remember this. Peter says to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He also uses this term strangers. This term could be translated as exiles or refugees. It indicates living alongside a people with whom they do not belong. So Peter is appealing to the fact that they reside in a foreign land. He may have had Abraham's experience in Genesis 23 in mind when he uses this term because it's identical. It's the exact same phrase that Abraham uses in Genesis 23. In verse 1 of Genesis 23, Now Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham rose from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner. I'm an exile in the land. I'm an alien." I'm alongside a group of people with whom I do not belong. He says, Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Well, because of Abraham's reputation in Canaan, verse 5 goes on to say, The sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our graves. None of us will refuse you his grave for burying your dead. Further down in verse 20, So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded over to Abraham for a burial site by the sons of Heth. Abraham found himself to be an exile in a land in which he didn't belong. Peter writes to the people in First Peter with that same mindset. You're in a land where you don't belong. This is not where you hold citizenship. Fundamental to this is Philippians 3 verse 20 where Paul says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you and I can easily forget this, especially in our society and our culture, because we settle into a level of comfort that most people throughout the world don't comprehend, don't have any idea of. We think that we're citizens in Redlands or Ukaipa or Highland or whatever it may be we think that that's where we reside and there's a sense in which we do but we reside there as exiles we're foreigners we need to be thinking that way it's important that we not simply think well you know I'm here on the earth for a short period of time we need to be thinking about the reality that our citizenship is not only not here but our citizenship is actually in heaven and there is a call upon our lives to think in such a way that our heart attitudes would be expressive of what it is to be a citizen of heaven. Now, only you know, and you don't even know it as well as God knows, exactly what goes on in your mind. You don't know with pristine sharpness exactly the condition of your heart. You can assess it, and you can certainly at times when you go way south with regard to ungodly thinking that it needs to be dredged up and dealt with. But the standard is to think the thoughts that you're going to be thinking in heaven. You ever thought about that? All that will be going on in your mind is what ought to be going on in your mind right now. Plus a desire for evangelism, which you won't have in heaven. But all the godly thinking that will encompass you, all the heart attitudes that will be directed toward God because of his greatness, and you now being in that glorified and perfected state, are things that you should be readying yourself for now by engaging in them now. We ought to have godly thinking because we are citizens of a godly place. Citizens of heaven. In 1 John 2, verse 15, John says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. So John here takes a stab at helping you and me understand that the thinking that ought to encompass our hearts, the heart attitudes that ought to characterize us, are not similar to the world. They are utterly opposed to that of the world. In the parable of the soils, in Mark chapter 4, verse 18, we read this definition of what's going on with the seeds that fell and had no result, And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. So even as we looked at last week in the book of Romans, it is not the fault of the word of God. It's not some fallibility in the word of God when it's proclaimed clearly and honestly and accurately. When someone responds with a rejection to that, It's not that there's some weakness in the Word of God. It is the heart attitude of the person who rejects it. In John 15, verse 18, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Now, be careful with this. Don't be obnoxious at work and blame all of your difficulties on the fact that you love Jesus. That's not right. It's not fair. It's not honest. Be willing to honestly receive persecution because you actually love Jesus and be willing to draw a line between those times where you've brought difficulty upon yourself unnecessarily and those times when it comes to you as a result of the fact that you really, really are being persecuted. I think, again, in our culture, it's extremely unusual to actually be persecuted for knowing Christ. I think it's absolutely unusual. But this is what we're called to. And the reality is it starts in the heart. It starts with a heart attitude that says, I'm going to think the thoughts that God has called me to think. And I'm going to recognize that that is, in fact, not a command that God has given to me because He has disdained for me and He wants my life to be bad and unenjoyable. It is because He loves me, because I am beloved. He has given this command to me. In Romans 12, verse 2, "...and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind." so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, it's very easy. It's extremely easy, maybe easier now in our era than it has ever been to be conformed to the pattern of this world. All you have to do is turn on your computer. No, all you have to do is turn on your phone. And you can quickly, immediately, first thing in the morning, conform to the pattern of this world. So instantaneously, your thoughts begin to be driven by that of the world. The command that Peter has given us is to, to abstain from that. Colossians 2, verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. Let me ask you this. Where was psychology 200 years ago? It didn't exist. How in the world did the church survive without it? With a clear and vast devotion to the Scripture. Where was evolution just a couple hundred years ago? Well, there were smatterings of that throughout history. But nothing like it is today. Why in the world is there a battle? Forget the world for a minute. Why is there a battle within the church with regard to the age of the earth? Because of a willingness to abandon a devotion to the Word of God and to embrace worldly thinking. It's that simple. Sure, you could spend a lot of time, and I don't think that's wrong, discussing the details of science and how the mind works. But the greater reality is that the church has abdicated the responsibility to help people to the world, saying, well, I think you need an expert. Why? Because they've allowed the Word of God to take a secondary or tertiary or insignificant place in their life. Rather than clinging to it, rather than being driven by it, rather than being willing to put out all other thoughts that do not come from the word of god james one twenty seven says pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our god and father is this to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world now think of it for a minute plenty of people would draw attention to their conduct saying well we do all these things We do all these things for, well, for widows and for orphans. Okay, but tell me about whether or not your life has become stained by the world. Tell me whether or not you think your thoughts based upon the most current and most popular clothing magazine as opposed to the Scripture itself. Or do you get your theology from a movie, right? So Peter's urgency at this point is rooted in God's love for the reader, but also in light of the fact that they are in a foreign land. You are in a foreign land, and it's too easy for us to forget that. It's too easy for us to say, well, you know, I've got difficulties. You know, I've tried the Word of God. You've heard me say many times the guy that stood up in a class I was teaching years ago, and I was teaching on anxiety. We're in Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing. It's a pretty clear command. Be anxious for nothing. And then there's a solution for anxiety. Pray with thanksgiving. That is the solution, and it's in the word of God. And a person who dwells on that, and a person who investigates that, and a person who rests in that will find that the Lord will begin to remove his anxiety if, in fact, he will be thankful. You can't be thankful and anxious at the same time. But this man stood up and said to me, he said, this is exactly how it went. He had his Bible in his hand. He looked at me, he was very angry, and he said, I tried that once and it didn't work. To which I responded, yeah, and I know a guy that lifted weights once, and that didn't work either. See, why is it, think this through, I'm asking a real question here. Why is it that we abdicate responsibility specifically with regard to things like anxiety, which the Bible addresses in full? Why do we abdicate that responsibility to people who don't even know the Lord because we've been willing at some point to say that the Word of God is not sufficient, and therefore, I need worldly philosophies. You will stand apart from the world if you will embrace what Peter is calling you to today. But I think you want to be set apart. I think you want to be effective. And I think based on this text this morning, you'll have a greater motivation to do that. I trust that we all will once we've worked our way through this. It is because of love, his love, the brethren's love, but most important, God's love, but also an interest in their Christian testimony that he urges them in verse 11 to abstain from fleshly lusts, which, listen to this, wage war against the soul. How about that? Fleshly lusts that wage war against the soul. And a lot of times you will say, well, you know, don't judge. You know, he's living his life. He's, you know, he's doing what he's doing. You know Let the Lord take care of that. The Lord will sort all that out. Really? Really? What does the Lord use? The Lord uses faithful believers. He used Peter in his faithfulness. He will use you in your faithfulness. He will use others in their faithfulness in your life. Read it again. Abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. It is out of love for them that he urges them to flee from that which does battle against their souls. You ever attempt to help someone with an obvious sin issue in that person's life, and they're just angry and defensive? No, I didn't do that. No, I'm not like that. No, stop it. You're just judging me. You would do whatever was necessary to help them understand that you're doing what you're doing out of love because you realize that the sin that they are engaging in is waging war against their soul but they're too sinful to know it in the moment. This term abstain, it's an interesting term. It's not exactly what you think when you see it, although it's, it's the right term. Uh, what I mean by that is the English translation of the Greek term. It really means to be finished with. Now listen closely. It means to be finished with, to have had enough. It's not just to, to approach the mindset about sinful thinking or fleshly thoughts and say, um, I'm not doing that. It's, it's to be full up to your eyeballs. That's the idea. It's to receive in full. But along with that, to be away from, to, to have had enough. It's to be finished with. To have grown weary of. Now, Peter says this, and so when he does, it's an indication that, that Christians can restrain fleshly lusts. See that? He's calling them to do something that can be done. Abstain. It's a command. This is passion of the flesh. Back in 1 Peter 1, verse 14, Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. What's he talking about? He's talking about who you used to be. If you're in Christ, don't be conformed to who you used to be. Or as Paul would help us understand, don't be like that corpse you're carrying around on your back until you die and go to heaven. Don't be like that guy anymore. That's who you used to be. When you were an unbeliever, you were ignorant of the seriousness of your sin. You didn't want to be confronted. You didn't want anybody telling you anything about anything. Because you thought you had it all wrapped up. Why? Because you were spiritually dead. You're no longer able to use that excuse if you're in Christ. Notice he calls them your former lusts. Fleshly lusts includes any internal desire that is opposed to God's will. It's not limited to sexual sin. Ultimately, ultimately, It's idolatry. It's idolatry. It's the stuff of the heart. It's that which is derived from within. Now listen to Paul's words that will help us much, I think, here from Romans 8, verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh, okay, this is who you used to be, unbelievers, set their minds on the things of the flesh. See that? They start the day in first gear focusing on something of the flesh, and it doesn't take long before they're in second, third, and fourth gear. Something of the world found its way into their heart, their mind, whether it's through a TV screen or a phone or a conversation or residual thoughts from the day before or the week before or the lifetime before or whatever. And I don't mean Hindu type of lifetime. I mean, you know, your pre-Christ lifetime, just in case you've wondered. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. You see that? The Spirit indwells you. What do you do? You set intentionally, deliberately, strategically, you set your mind on the things of the Spirit. You do that if the Spirit indwells you. You say, but I don't, I don't do that as often as I should. No, no one does that as often as they should. Be encouraged that if you intentionally set your mind on the things of the Spirit, that's evidence that the Spirit of God indwells you. But the person who pervasively, unrepentantly chooses to set his mind on the things of the flesh is the person who is engaged in fleshly lusts in such a way that would prove that he's not a believer. Peter here is speaking to the believer, saying, don't be conformed to that. Don't let that rule your thinking. Don't let that influence your thinking. Whatever it is, put it away. Cut it off. Verse 6 in Romans 8, For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Right? There's a good case for recognizing that if you are saved, it's because God caused you to be saved god caused you to be born again to go back to peter's terminology in 1 peter 1 you're not able to set their minds on the things of the spirit so how could they how would they they're not able to do so verse 8 and those who are in the flesh cannot please god you say but what about the person who does good things he's not a believer but he does good things let me read it to you again and those who are in the flesh cannot please god it's pretty simple. So any effort to do any good thing is selfishly motivated. It's only intended to get something in return. You say, well, I know somebody that's not a believer It's not like that. You don't know that person as well as you think you do. God knows that person infinitely, internally, intrinsically. He knows that person inside and out. And his declaration is that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now listen, think carefully about this. Lest you reject this mindset where we're headed in this text this morning is your ability to be used of the Lord for that person to actually know the Lord so don't think well you know he's a pretty good person I think it'll all turn out okay I think if we're inclined to heed this text this morning we will be careful about our conduct we will be recognizing the fact that every move we make that person is watching and it's driven by what's in the heart destroy ungodly, soul-destroying thinking. How do you do that? Peter doesn't give us everything that Paul does on this, so let's borrow from Paul for a minute. Galatians 5, verse 16, Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit. That's the key. say, but what does that mean? Let's keep reading. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. You don't want to carry out the desires of the flesh that wage war against your soul. You don't want that. You don't want the devastating reality that comes with sin that wages war against your soul. You don't want to think lightly about that. So what's the solution? Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. What does that mean? It certainly doesn't mean that you are not obligated to obey the law of God. It means that you are not subject to its penalty. You're not subject to the penalty of the law of God. Why? Because the Spirit of God indwells you. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sin. So when you disobey the law of God, you're bringing great difficulty into your life, but you cannot bring God's ultimate wrath upon you. But don't be presumptuous about that, because the person who is proves that he's not a believer. The person who presumptuously says, well, God's uh, wrath is not for me because the Spirit of God indwells me and uh, Jesus Christ died for me and he was resurrected for my new life, that person proves that he's not walking in that newness of life. And if that is the overarching character of his life, he proves he's not in Christ. So don't rest too easy with regard to this. But recognize that very simply, what it means to walk by the Spirit is to obey the Spirit. How do you do that? You read the Word. The only thing you can know about what the Spirit has directed you to do is in His Word. Stick with that, and that's what it is to walk by the Spirit. It's really not mystical. It's really not difficult. There are those who will passionately tell you that to walk by the Spirit means that you're going to get additional information on top of what's in the Bible, and they're wrong. They're wrong. You know how I know they're wrong? Number one, because of what the Bible says about itself. The person who adds to the Scripture, to him will be added the plagues mentioned in it. Proverbs 30 verses 5 and 6 make it very clear. He who adds to the Word of God will be proved to be a liar, But also, just on a practical level, the way we know that those people are not telling the truth is because they all contradict each other. Everybody's got special information. Everybody's got an epiphanal experience where God has told them something and they all contradict each other. Who's right? Well, God is always right, and His Word is where He has shown us what He has said. But this fleshly lustful thinking as we said wages war against the soul now let's look a little bit at what that looks like in James 1 verse 14 James says but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust so your sin is your fault my sin is my fault it starts in the heart each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust The whole sin problem of your day or your week or things that you engage in that are not honoring to the Lord. It starts with an embryonic lust. You gave way to something, somewhere. Verse 15, James 1. Then when lust was conceived, you see the word picture? When lust was conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth great joy. No, it brings forth what you don't want. It brings forth death. And that ought to frighten you. It ought to frighten me. It ought to be that which we lean on to help the unbeliever understand that a life of holiness is exactly what the Lord has called a person to if he is in Christ. And to simply claim the name of the Lord, I ask Jesus into my heart, all that silly talk that you've heard time and time again, it leads to a lack of holiness. It leads to fire insurance. I got him in my heart now, so I'm good. I made a decision for Jesus. Commentary that's not in the word of God. It's not there. But you've heard it time and time and time again. You've heard it so many times. For many people, they've heard it so many times. When they hear me say something like this, they get mad at me. But it's not there. But what does it lead to? Many, many times it leads to a life of unholiness and it leads ultimately to death. And then this will be the argument commonly. Well, but that's how I came to know the Lord. I asked Jesus into my heart. No, you didn't. That's not how it happened. That's how I remember it. You remember it wrong. It's not in the Bible. You don't rewrite God's plan for salvation and believe it so firmly that somehow now you're right and God's been wrong for 2,000 years, 3,500 years, really. That kind of thinking wages war on your soul. And this is why, friends, this is why people don't want to be confronted with their sin. Because Their whole Christian experience is rooted in something they did, and how dare you address something I've done? How dare you call into question my salvation experience? Listen to what John MacArthur says about this issue. It's really helpful. He says, wage war is a strong term that generally means to carry out a long-term military campaign. It implies not just antagonism, but a relentless, malicious aggression. Since it takes place in the soul, it is a kind of civil war. Joined with the concept of fleshly lusts, the image is of an army of lustful terrorists waging an internal search and destroy mission to conquer the soul of the believer. As a believer, that's what you do, that's what I do, When we refuse to abstain from fleshly lusts, we invite sinful terrorism into our lives and hearts. Colossians 3 verse 6 says, For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. How could you or I as a believer want that? How could we risk that? Why would we consider it? It's because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. It's two different things. You walked in them, that means you did them. But you lived in them, that means they were of your character. But now you also put them all aside. Now listen closely, okay? Listen to this. These are the words of Paul. These are the things, these are the hard attitudes, these are the actions. This is the conduct that Paul says leads to God's wrath. I plead with you to hear me on this. Here they are. But now you also put them all aside: anger, wrath, malice. Malice is, is any wayward thinking toward another person. Just put it away. Why? Because it brings God's wrath. It's not just some game you're playing in your mind. Slander. You know, that's saying bad stuff about people when they're not around. Abusive speech. That's saying it when they are around. Those two things, they bring God's wrath. Remove them all from your mouth. Galatians 5, 19 to 21, Paul says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident. They're obvious, you know, This doesn't take a license. It doesn't take a seminary degree to figure this out, right? The deeds of the flesh are evident. And here they are, immorality, impurity. Let me jump to the end of this passage, and then we'll come back and finish it, okay? Here's what Paul says about these things. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's a stern, dire warning. So here's the list again. Immorality, impurity, sensuality idolatry, sorcery, enmities. In other words, you, you have an enemy, you know. Strife. You know, you don't mind being the person who's always the problem. You're the person who's the source of strife. Jealousy. Outbursts of anger. You see that? You see the problem here? Let me, let me take you back for a minute to that idea of asking Jesus into your heart. So frequently, people will lean on that. And they've got this rhythmic pattern of ungodliness in their life. And they they dismiss all that because I asked Jesus into my heart. And there's no willingness to look at a passage like this that says that you won't inherit the kingdom of God. Disputes, you know, a constant effort to just argue Dissensions, factions, envying. See, the person who lives a life of envy, his problem is he's not a Christian. He will not inherit the kingdom of God if that's the pervasive mindset of his life. He envies other people. Drunkenness, carousing, things like these. This is not a comprehensive list, but other things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you. I have forewarned you before, I'm forewarning you again, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Friends, do you understand the substantial problem in Christendom today? You know what I, you know what I mean by that word Christendom? It's different from the word Christianity. Christianity is those who really know the Lord. Christendom is this big world of everybody who, you know, George Barner would say, well, he's a believer because he called himself a believer. George Barnes is the survey guy who believes everybody who says, I'm a Christian, and so he does his surveys based upon that. But do you understand the, the great significance of what's happening here in our culture? And, and that we as a church must be willing to subject ourselves to this truth that says that the person who is in Christ, the person who is beloved of God, is urged by the Apostle Peter as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Were you and I to look back on our lives 20 years from now, 40 years from now, who knows what will take place on the world spectrum. The things that are happening now are making us wonder all the more. But you and I have but one opportunity to live in such a way that our conduct would set us apart i want to finish this up this morning by calling your attention to a, a distinct reality that is i believe of immense importance and that is this your conduct is the result of what's in your heart you know that out of the mouth speaks the heart jesus said so what you say is in in essence the result of who you are and You know, sometimes you might apologize for something and say, you know, I'm so sorry I did that. I'm so sorry I I, I said that. That's not me. And uh, we might quote Ted Tripp who said, well, it sure looked like you. In other words, it was you. And Peter would have us remember that we are loved of God and that we are to destroy ungodly, soul-destroying thinking And if we are to do that, the Lord will use us. The Lord will use us. Let me just finish with concluding verse 12, and then we'll work our way through it next week. Peter says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation a couple of quick thoughts to help you put this into practice what will you do to apply this text to your life this morning how will you trust the lord to to do a work in your own heart that might actually help you to be involved in the equipping of others that they too would see the lord do a work in their hearts i would encourage you number one to walk by the spirit Set your hearts on walking by the Spirit. Number two, I would encourage you to long for correction. Not a few times the Word of God declares this reality, that the person who does not want to be instructed, he doesn't want to be confronted, he does not want correction, he's a fool. He's a fool. And then number three, and this really kind of fast-forwards us into our text for next week, exercise godly conduct. Be on guard. Be aware of the fact that what you do impacts people. People are watching, and not just your children, not just your children, but wherever you are, wherever you go, people are watching you, and you have an opportunity to have an eternal influence through your attitude and through your conduct on a lost and dying world who needs Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. We plead with you now that You would help us to, to gather our thoughts, to think rightly about what it is to know the Lord and to even think beyond that with regard to what it means to have relationships with others who know the Lord. You've called us to lives of holiness and You've given us the great joy of being able to read it and see it and be taught from it in Your Word. So we ask that You would move on our hearts now that we would think rightly about what it is to observe the Lord's table. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness in Jesus' death and his resurrection. We pray that our time together in the Lord's table would honor you. Amen.